Welcome to Twirl, the week in health law, the occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on August 27th, 2019. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. The Oklahoma opioid verdict was handed down on August 26th. That's yesterday for us. And of course, there's only one person I want to discuss it with, and that's Jennifer Oliver. Professor Oliver is on the faculty at Seton Hall Law, where she specializes in health, FDA, and evidence law. An honors graduate of Georgetown University Law Center, Professor Oliver was a public interest law scholar and served as executive notes and comments editor on the Georgetown Law Journal. After law school, Professor Oliver clerked on the 10th and 3rd Circuit Courts of Appeals. Show off. She also served as the Deputy State Solicitor of the State of Delaware and go to her SSRN page and enjoy her wonderful scholarship. Welcome back to the pod, Jen. Thanks for having me, Nick. So the J&J verdict is in and we've got 42 pages of tea leaves to pick over. Uh, but I think we should probably start a few thousand feet up in the air and talk a little bit uh, about the overall litigation landscape. Well, where we're at right now, as you know, we have 45 states. I guess we could say uh, we'd say 44, if, but J&J is appealing uh, that are suing in their own state courts under various state statutes, including public nuisance. But we still have the 2000 plus cases on the docket in Cleveland uh, brought by the counties, the cities, municipalities, tribes and the NAS babies and the uh, Judge Polster has laid down the date of October 21st for the two Ohio County Bellwether trials. So that's sort of the landscape right now, Nick. It's a lot more complicated than, for example, it was in the tobacco litigation, where essentially, I mean, we got individual plaintiffs later and they're still having fun in Florida. <laughs> right. Uh, basically, it was the state attorneys general, uh, pretty much after the first few filings, all working together to try and get a settlement out of um, uh, the tobacco companies. This is quite different in that the state attorneys general, although they 37 of them, I think, are working together in the background. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, they are proceeding sort of individually, such as we saw in um, Oklahoma. And we've seen a lot of activity in New York and Massachusetts as well. So there's that sort of slightly different dynamic. And the second dynamic, I think, is, uh, as you say, uh, the federal court has these smaller political units um, yes. who have been there from the beginning. And there's even a sort of a political layer to this now, um, mm-hmm. right? Which yes. is that the state attorneys general are going, wait a minute, we should be collecting the money, not these smaller locales. Um, so there are lots of reasons why this settlement, which we all know will come in the end, is taking so long to gestate, sort of elephant-like. I also think that there's going to be a third stage in this. After the federal case, the state cases, as they get settled, I think more and more we're going to see um, the big stick of the federal government coming in with criminal uh, actions against both companies and executives. I think that's being telegraphed at the moment. And we got a we got a good glimpse of what is possible when we saw the dump of the DEA data uh, that we both talked about a while ago. But um, I also think that, well, you know, we're paid to 
critique these kinds of opinions, right? And probably a lot of what we say in the next 15 or 20 minutes will be critical, um, will cast some doubts on the decision. Um, but I think it would be wrong not to sort of note the obvious, right? That after years of speculation and sifting through tons of paperwork, goodness knows all those poor law firm associates in warehouses <laughs> slowly coughing through the dust as they as they opened the, the, the multitude of boxes. But we now have a real verdict in a right. real case and an award of over half a billion dollars to the state of Oklahoma. Second, while we may be discussing some flaws in the Oklahoma case, the evidence, both that presented in Oklahoma and the documents and the DEA data that recently seeped out of Cleveland through Freedom of Information requests, suggests the pharmaceutical companies and distributors have much to answer for. Correct. Third, we haven't really seen publicly yet the most smoking of the smoking guns, right? Because the Purdue defendant dropped out of the Oklahoma suit and settled. And so we are still sort of living off allegations and rumor about just what is in the the Purdue uh, backlot. Um, although I think we, thanks to Stat News, who just got right. a new uh, data dump, uh, we're going to see a lot more Purdue documents. So that's some of the background. So let's start unpicking the case. What is public nuisance and what on earth has it got to do with this kind of case? I mean, when I learn public nuisance, when I've taught public nuisance, I've, I've always thought about pig farms and light being blocked by someone's uh, new house addition or something like that. What's going on with public nuisance? Well, you hit the nail on the head. Traditionally, public nuisance law has been very rooted to real property or premises. So, for example, you, Nick, are using your property in a way that's interfering with the common good or common rights. So you're playing your loud British uh, racket music at night and, and you're disturbing the neighborhood. And so we, we all decided to bring a claim against you. Uh, Oklahoma, though, has a very broad statute that is sort of unrooted or unmoored the public nuisance tort from uh, real property, uh, which is unusual. Uh, the state of Washington, for example, and many other jurisdictions, North Dakota being a good example, have statutes that expressly discuss, you know, houses of ill repute, uh, gambling establishments. Their examples are over and over again, sort of vice operations out of homes or using your premises in a way that is disturbing the peace or the common good or your neighbors. So uh, Oklahoma does statutes broader than that. Uh, it's you know, it's harming public health and safety, uh, seems to pass muster under that statute. So the attorney general made a decision. This case started out with many claims against three defendants, two have settled, uh, and he decided to stick with public nuisance. And, and it's because that statute's very broad and also because he doesn't have a damages cap. So Oklahoma, most Oklahoma's torts are capped with some sort of statutory damages. This statute has an exception. If the state is the plaintiff, if the state AG brings a case, there is no end in sight from a statutory perspective on what the damages could be. So it allowed them to ask for the $17.6 billion in abatement. 
that. Right. So, you know, he had Medicaid fraud as a claim against Teva and uh, Purdue Pharma. And when Purdue settled for $270 million, and they admitted no wrongdoing, but that was one of the claims. The federal government came in and said, well, Oklahoma, as is true in all the states, the federal government pays at least 50% of your Medicaid costs. Oklahoma, they pay above 60%. And said, if there was fraud on the Medicaid program, you know, 60 some percent of that fraud was on our books. We paid for it. We need to recoup the funds. And Oklahoma has really st- missed that and is really struggling right now to try to come up with how they're going to refund the money. And the federal government has a real remedy there because it simply doesn't have to make the next quarter payment. Uh, so CMS has laid down the law here, sent the, the state a letter and said, we can start withholding payments at any other time. Let us know what your plan is on how you're going to pay the money back. So certainly the Medicaid fraud claim looked far less appealing after uh, the Purdue settlement. So I think there are two issues raised by your description of the public nuisance uh, claim in Oklahoma. First, the extent to which you think that will be upheld on appeal or whether maybe the Oklahoma Supreme Court will turn away from this very thin rule, right? Which, while attractive because, hey, you've got a remedy for anything and everything, um, creates great uncertainty and leads to multiple lawsuits that might well turn around to to, to bite the Oklahoma uh, court system. So I think that's the first question. Then the second question is, given your thoughts, what does this mean for public nuisance actions in other states brought by other state attorneys general? Well, I think you make an excellent point. And, and J&J vigorously argued uh, with, with the, the trial judge here that this is a floodgates. If, if There was no suit that, that wouldn't prevail if he was going to interpret the statute as broadly as the state was, was asking asking him to, which it seems like he did. I do think that J&J's perhaps stronger argument on appeal and maybe more politically satiable argument on appeal is causation, which we could talk about later, but they they have vigorously argued this. They've definitely preserved this issue for appeal, and their argument is that this is unhinged from the concept of public nuisance. You've now converted all your products liability claims, uh, which have very serious elements to them, um, now to this very lenient, easy, open-ended public news. No one's safe. No one's safe doing business in Oklahoma. Uh, the second part uh, of your question is pretty easy to answer because we've already had a dismissal of a public nuisance claim in the state of North Dakota, uh, where the, the and the judge easily dismissed that claim, saying this is a property or premises claim. It always has been. This is rooted in old English law, as tort professor Terry here already told us. And um, this absolutely does not meet any of the elements of, of, of public nuisance as well understood in our longstanding North Dakota. Dakota law. So more states are like North Dakota <laughs> or someplace in the middle than they are anywhere near Oklahoma. So I, I would caution folks in the media from over analogizing uh, the Oklahoma decision to other jurisdictions. And like I said, some of them are so explicit, th- th- you know, about even the type of premises uh, that, that can be held liable uh, under these statutes that I, I, it's just a poor analogy. That raises an interesting question going forward in the other states and in Cleveland, because because uh, given now, obviously, skepticism about or concern, better more than skepticism, about bringing a Medicaid count, if public right. nuisance isn't available, you're beginning to sort of run down your list, aren't you, to less favorable options. And I guess um, state consumer protection uh, statutes, some sorts of 
common law fraud, maybe, things like that. You mentioned causation. Let's now tackle the causation evidence that was relied on uh, by the judge that was presented. Uh, if we were being mean to our law students and sort of said, here's a whiteboard, map out what causation looks like in a case like this. I guess you'd sort of come up with potentially multiple steps. Uh, did the alleged marketing and detailing cause increased prescribing in a particular doctor or a statistically significant number of doctors? And did that prescribing cause addiction in a particular patient or a statistically meaningful class of patient? And did that addiction and that prescribing cause injuries associated with street drugs that the patient turned to at some later stage? That's an extraordinary line of causation. We would expect the students to write that out, and then they would have to deal with it at every step, as you alluded to. Here, it's it's just very tricky because there are so many steps. Uh, there were there was very little fact finding about each step in the written forty two page written opinion. Even though you and I poured through that looking for it, there was there was some facts about uh, the number of doctors that were called that were detailed by sales reps from J and J. The amount of education programming that J and J put on, funding of pain groups that advocated uh, and and sort of dispelled certain messages about opioids are the fifth vital sign and, and they're safe and only two point six percent of the population would ever become addicted to them. There was some fact finding on that, but there was no fact finding beyond that to link up your players that you just talked about. And what's very interesting about those players for and this is what I would really expect my tort students to get right is um, there's a bunch of learned intermediaries between Johnson and Johnson with the poppy farm in Tasmania making the precursors for oxycodone and hydrocodone to the pharmacies, to the doctors, to patients in the medical system prescribed and then diverted or otherwise to people outside the system and then that then turned to, as you've already noted, more powerful or potent street uh, opioids like heroin or fentanyl. That is a huge problem in this litigation that was never addressed. Uh, Johnson & Johnson ferociously litigated those points, uh, but it wasn't addressed. I mean, you know, doctors and pharmacists have their own code of ethics, their own licensing requirements, their own standards of care. And Johnson & Johnson is saying doctors can't be fooled by us legally. Like, legally, they can't be because they have their own oblig moral obligations and ethical obligations, professional licensing obligations to these patients. Moreover, some of J&J's most powerful evidence was, you know, these are legal products, and sometimes they're the best legal products for particular patients. And they read off, if not once, 10 times every other day of that trial on cross-examination to every expert, read the label on our product. With their Schedule II opioids said, these are highly addictive. These are the FDA labels. And they had those experts read those uh, labels over and over again from the stand saying, doctors are obligated to look at this and read this correct. And of course, the answer was always yes. So this is a really, really difficult causation case. And I just didn't see the fact. 
facts. You know, I didn't see the fact finding. So I think it's uh, just to, to track back for a second. I think it's interesting. You, you brought up the FDA approval, mm-hmm. both of the drug and also of the marketing. Uh, that also, I think, creates a problem for the Oklahoma Supreme Court as to whether they're going to declare something that is a federally government approved product with federally federal government approved marketing, whether they're going to label that a public nuisance. But let's let's continue with the, the causation strain here. Certainly when I read the opinion, the word correlation more than causation, <laughs> right, came to mind. But does that matter? And here's here's the nub of my question. We may read that opinion and think the evidence was a bit thin. We may think that the judge didn't rely on a whole bunch of really thick, meaningful evidence. But for the purposes of an appeal, does that matter? Well, you know, that's the legal issues on causation uh, will be vigorously argued on appeal. But frankly, um, you know, he points to expert evidence testimony. He points to enough fact findings. I mean, that's an abuse of discretion standard on appeal. It is highly unlikely that the Oklahoma Supreme Court is going to manipulate with its longstanding doctrine on how trial evidence in a bench trial uh, is 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 uh, deferred to uh, in this case. This is not going to be the case. They're not going to incite the public uh, in this high profile of a case and and mess with longstanding evidence doctrine. So to be honest with you, that's where the state is quite safe from a legal perspective. Uh, what they have to hope is that they prevail on the legal claims about how broad that nuisance statute is and whether there are legal causation problems uh, with with the statute um, and and how the proof went, but they're not going to be able to second guess uh, the statements were, that were made, even if you and I could say scientifically, perhaps some of them weren't accurate. Right. right. I mean, I, I've frequently told my taught students, you know, don't expect a causation case to be overturned on appeal. No. So right? yeah, I, I, mean, I, you, I agree. I think that's where that that's yeah. certainly true. So I, our friend Leah Bletsky on on Twitter last night uh, raised the um, the much deeper point, of course, which is these kinds of opinions relying on thin evidence can make for pretty bad law and pretty bad policy. Right. I, I don't remember Daubert issues coming up well, in the case. They, well, I, who knows what the appeal will look like, but I will say this, you know, they've got a way to appeal evidentiary issues, but they, they, J&J moved to strike almost every single one of the state's yeah. experts, you yeah. know, and some, some of the really famous ones, in fact, uh, they vigorously moved to strike. Um, so they filed motions in limine and they, they raised it. So they, it is preserved. Yeah. So I actually, I, I assume that it's a, that Oklahoma is a fry jurisdiction, not a Daubert jurisdiction anyway, but, but moving on back into areas that I might know something about. <laughs> <laughs> escaping, escaping the traps of, of evidence law. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the damages. Okay. You know, boy, $572 million is more than 271 plus 85, which is sort of Purdue plus Teva. Right. And is less than $17 billion. <laughs> Correct. We've seen figures suggesting that the U.S. economy has suffered to the tune or or persons and the economy have suffered to the tune of about a trillion dollars with maybe another half trillion to come. We've seen some evidence collected about how uh, the costs have hit particular locales, uh, cities and so on. Um, I've always sort of talked in terms of what I think uh, the global settlement number will be, not including the federal government's piece of uh, of this. I've always thought it was probably settleable at around 100 to 150 billion. But, you know, 
So given that, what do we think of 572 million? I'm going to answer this both ways, and then hopefully um, your, your, all your listeners will be satisfied. It's a huge win for J&J on the one hand. It's a huge win for J&J on the one hand, and if you, if you don't believe me, because less than 3% of what, what you know the, the plaintiffs were asking for here, it's only a one-year abatement. I, they, I, I totally do not believe they were expecting uh, it to round out that way. And moreover, between, I think, 4 p.m. and the closing of the bell down the street here uh, yesterday, Nick, uh, the stock rose 5%. So Wall Street loved it. Uh, they were predicting at 1.5 uh, billion, uh, something in that. And, and, and so the the stock rally, J&J, Janssen Pharmaceuticals rallied heavily on Wall Street at the bitter end of the day yesterday after this opinion was announced. So for, if you look at all of those things, you say that J&J is a huge winner. If you look at it in isolation, J&J is a huge loser because we've already talked about this. They, they were in single digits in their prescribing sort of stuff in Oklahoma, and they didn't prescribe, they didn't uh, manufacture or, or distribute um, uh, the two biggest opioids that have been problematic in, in Oklahoma. Um, so what they've been saying all along is we should have very, very small percentage of this in Oklahoma look at the raw data. That's a big number given how little business J&J actually did with its own products in Oklahoma. So they're effectively being held accountable for the entire total of one year that the health economists came up with largely on the backs of the judge not liking their marketing behavior and the fact that they made those precursor uh, raw narcotic elements that I think they said they sold to all seven generic opioid makers and Teva, Purdue, uh, who were also in this lawsuit, which which were ran big operations in in Oklahoma comparatively. So uh, you can really argue either way who's the winner, who's the loser here. But uh, financially, J&J, the response from the market was that they, they did the best they possibly could have. One question that we don't really have a a sense of the answer to at the moment is, imagine if Teva and Purdue had stayed in the case, all right, and the judge had come to the same conclusion and the same damage award. What would the contribution look like (laughs) between the defendants? Now, I'm assuming that Oklahoma is a joint and several liability state. I'm pretty sure it is. So from the perspective of the state, it doesn't matter. Right. But how do the defendants carve this up what's what's the metric is it a form of market share Mm -hmm. a number of pills shipped Right. That's the thing. So I think there would have been each defendant would have presented the metrics that, you know, and they would have actually ended up fighting with each other about this, which is what usually happens in these kinds of cases. And what's so unusual here is the judge did not make any kind of assessment. Right. He just said, here's the total cost for one year. J&J pays the whole thing. And that's that. Um, I, I really wish that was part of the opinion. I think it, it's going to be important on appeal. I certainly J&J is going to raise that issue. Uh, Leo Bolesky also said, I'm going to I'm kind of expecting this number to go down. And I think that's because that analysis did not, it's at least going to get remanded probably for some kind of an analysis. And you're absolutely right. I mean, you, even though those defendants settled, the real question is where was the analysis about everyone who did business in Oklahoma that manufactured these products, including the generic uh, company, the other six generic makers that weren't even in the, had never been sued by the state of Oklahoma, Tiva being the largest one was, but the other ones weren't. That is again, maybe puzzle number three or four, whatever on here in the lawsuit is, um, 
yes, the defendants would have duped that out. They would have had to come up with a metric. Everybody would have been 100% on the hook, but uh, certainly there would have been some proportional contribution based on some metric that the judge decided was the best metric. And we may still see some of that because settling defendants, right, can yes. still be put into the contribution That's pile. right. That's so right. So that, that game may still be afoot. So we've both been talking about this all day, either live or on Twitter. So we need to bring this to an end. But my sort of last question is, do you have a sense as to what we've witnessed over the last 24 hours, the the legal basis of the opinion, the causation questions, the sheer amount of the damage award? Do you think that's going to accelerate state attorneys general going against the opioid defendants? Or do you think it's going to light a fire under Judge Polster and the folks in Cleveland? Or does this even perhaps open the door to let's all get in a room together? Boy, they must have big rooms in Cleveland. (laughs) Sing Kumbaya and come up with a global settlement that covers the states as well as the other cities, municipalities, tribal nations, and so on. You know, it's hard to guess with this sort of thing, but I do imagine now that they have a few different benchmarks from these settlements and now this first judgment, everybody's going to jockey. They're going to get in that room and everybody's going to jockey. You know, one side's going to say, look, the evidence was weak. Oklahoma has an unusual statute. This was overly generous. The contribution analysis wasn't done here. Let's see what happens on appeal. You guys better go ahead and and, and settle with us and we're going to lowball you, right? Like you said, they've already offered 10 million on the on the on the D side of the of the case um, on the other hand, plaintiffs are going to feel empowered right I mean they're going to say look this if we can win public nuisance and we still have negligence and fraud and all this other stuff even with the federal government um, Medicaid fraud contribution issue that's still the defendants still have to pay so um, I think that both sides will hit the room they've got this negotiating class judge pollsters push that through now the state's attorney generals don't like it but they're still hiding out in the room right beside them dipping in and out, you know, raising their authority. No one's done that more than Ohio and Texas. They argued the case. And um, yeah, I I mean, there's going to be, they're they're probably all negotiating right now. Hopefully we see something move forward on this. So I don't think they, I don't think they want to go to trial, Dick. They're they're trying to buy their ways out of these trials. So. Yep. Yeah. Well, you saw there were a couple of the smaller manufacturers have already trying to get out of the bellwether trials with some low ball, like 15 million between the two of them or something. Right. Yeah. As we're recording this, of course, we have late breaking news that the Sackler family and Purdue Farmer have made an initial offer to settle all of the opioid claims. I wondered if you just had some brief thoughts about that offer as an opening bid, if you like, and some of the abatement uh, aspects to the offer. Yeah, so the Sacklers um, and Purdue Pharma have become perhaps the most notorious villains of the opioid crisis and received a lot of bad press. Uh, My first observation is that the timing of... um, this offers very interesting. Of course, it's immediately on the heels of the Oklahoma judgment against J&J. And uh, moreover, it's on the heels of Stat News, as we mentioned earlier, um, winning uh, a public records access case in Kentucky, um, where they're going to receive numerous documents uh, about Purdue's behavior. 
Um, and I did notice yesterday they, they posted a video of Richard Sackler's uh, earlier deposition in that case um, in which he was not cast in the best light. Um, the structure of the settlement's also interesting. Um, it looks like um, both the Sacklers and um, Purdue are offering about a third of the money that's connected to their their personal wealth and profits um, related to opioids. Um, uh, Purdue is offering 10 to $12 billion to settle all of its cases uh, in Cleveland on the opioid MDL. Um, and by all reports, uh, Purdue made uh, somewhere north of $35 billion in Oxycontin sales. Um, so that's, you know, getting close to, you know, a third or something in there on that. Um, also, the uh, Sacklers themselves are offering another 3 to $4.5 billion, which is interestingly structured because it's dependent on the family uh, selling um, one of their subsidiary uh, global pharmaceutical companies, Mundi Pharma. Um, so the payout is dependent on how much the family would make um, on that purported sale. And their net worth uh, is, is being reported at about uh, $13 billion. So again, that's looking like they're sort of going for a third there. Um, Purdue is threatening that if this um, settlement offer is, is not accepted uh, by the MDL plaintiffs, um, they will go ahead and declare Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Um, but they're, they're also saying that even if the settlement is accepted, um, that the uh, Purdue Pharma will declare Chapter 11 bankruptcy and restructure the company as a public benefit trust. Uh, it would continue to exist for about 10 years, and the value of the trust would include $4 billion, of course, of Purdue's own treatment medications, um, and that, that that money would ultimately uh, devolve to the plaintiffs. So what's, what's interesting here is that two times now, first in Oklahoma and um, here again on the MDL, part of the, the settlement package from Purdue is uh, either some sort of donation in kind or um, uh, profit-based um, um, monies uh, to the plaintiffs um, based on uh, sales or donations of its own treatment drugs. Well, I think it's only going to play on for a bit longer, and I've, I've got a feeling this won't be the last time we chat about this, Jen. <laughs> right. And that was The Week in Health Law. A huge thank you to Professor Oliver for joining me. You can find her on Twitter as... At Jen D. Oliver, J-E-N-N-D-O-L-I-V-A. She's a lively tweeter. Go and enjoy it. Show notes are at twill.com. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week.